Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We've got a, a busy week of basketball. We got the injury bug finally hitting some teams and unfortunately taking some players out for the season. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the second year leap that some players are taking. We'll do some way too early all-star predictions and we will finish off with everybody's favorite segment, plead their case where you will answer a series of questions, pleading the case for the individual or situation on just what's going on there. To start, let's get into the weekly recap. So let's talk about some of the best individual performances and games of this week. What did you see? Yeah, so um, there was definitely a lot to like this week. Um, Stephen Curry turned in another monster week, as always. It's hard to pick, but um, I guess we can start out with the performance that we had from Giannis Antetokounmpo against the Lakers. Um, he put down 47 points, nine rebounds. You had Jimmy Double or uh, Jimmy Butler turn in another triple double with the Heat with 31 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists, and uh, he's quickly actually becoming the all-time leader in triple doubles in Heat history. I think he's only two away from passing LeBron. And he's doing it, obviously, in a, in a lot less time. You have Stephen Curry with 37.7 rebounds, five assists against the Nets. Um, that was another key game. And then, obviously, Jason Tatum with a monster 37-point, 11-rebound performance in his uh, win against the Lakers. Yeah, I agree with you on those, but those are some, uh, I think, big names. I want to flip it now uh, and talk about some of the uh, people who you don't hear often. So... Uh, you had Lugan Stort from the Thunder scoring 34 points uh, the other night, which, you know, it really was a, a great performance from him carrying the Thunder. Uh, and then with Stephen Curry out, a player that I think we've touched on a little bit, but Jordan Poole, 32 points, seven rebounds, two assists, amazing game from the young guy. Uh, I think he's 22 years old. And we've talked a little bit about how the Warriors are mixing the old with the new and their best record on the season honestly looking like they at this pace could uh get a better record than their 73 nine season i don't think that will happen because they i think are likely to hit a slump at some point but this is a team that still doesn't have weisman still doesn't have clay thompson and with their best player out given granted they were playing the pistons who are probably the worst team in the league right now but still to see the young guy jordan Poole step up and have a game like that, I think was impressive. And you already touched on Jason Tatum, but he followed up that game where he beat the Lakers with uh, 37 points and then came out against the Thunder and scored another 33 points, having a plus 22 on the night. So amazing on the defensive end as well. Um, so it's good to see. We talked a bit about the changing of the guard in episode two, but you have these young players on teams that either they're the star or have other stars on the team and, and they're seemingly um, just expediting this changing of the guard definitely you're seeing a lot of players make an impact as much as you're seeing some players that we're used to seeing um score higher averages for example damian lillard james harden trey young luka Doncic. we are seeing some players regress in scoring but we're also seeing other players take that leap forward as well so i'm um, another player that we can touch on miles bridges for example another young guy stepping forward had a performance of 35 points 10 rebounds against the hawks that's another guy that's going to get paid at the end of the year. But so far, I think that um, through, I think, about 15 games for most teams, the league has looked pretty competitive and pretty good this season. Absolutely. I think we even see it in the East. I mean, the East has always been not the laughingstock, but always been the lesser of the two conferences. And I think with the influx of young players, because they've always been the lesser of the two conferences overall, worst teams, so getting better picks. Um, the, the East is looking extremely competitive while we talked about last week, the West is kind of, uh, what you would expect, um, in terms of the standings currently, but speaking of the standings, I want to take a look at the East first right now you have the bucks and the Sixers, two teams that made it deep into conference play last year in the playoffs. 
You also have the Hawks and the Raptors on the outside looking in, the Pacers, who I think everybody thought might be a little better this year. But given the East standings, what teams that are in the top six do you expect to fall into the play-in? And are there any play-in teams or teams outside of the top 10 that you expect to get into the top six? Um, well, for me, I definitely think that um, the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to be dropping out of the top eight. And we'll get into that a little bit more in depth in a, in a bit, but I don't expect them to hold down a top eight spot. And I also see the Hornets as a team that might potentially fall out as well. I just don't trust them as much because of all the teams that are in the top eight, aside from the Cleveland Cavaliers, they're the only ones that have a negative differential. And actually the Cavaliers don't have a negative differential. Their differential is zero. So the Hornets really are the only team in the top eight of the East that actually have a negative differential. So I would say those two teams are the ones to pick to drop out for sure. And then as far as the teams to take those spots, it's kind of tough to pick between the Milwaukee Bucks, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Philadelphia 76ers, because these are all teams that we all expected would definitely be holding down um, playoff spots. But I guess I'd have to go with um, most likely the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks because I think that their rosters are probably better constructed. I think the 76ers got off to a really good start, but they've really been sluggish lately. And having that Ben Simmons situation on their hands isn't helping because they're essentially allocating all-star level assets to a player that is not playing. So you're essentially playing a man down and it's counting against the cap and you can't go get anybody um, because he's basically on the books taking up this roster spot. So unless the 76ers can get rid of him, I, I don't really know that I can seriously consider them a contender in the East. That's hurting you on both not having him on the court, but also your financial situation. So I think that the 76ers definitely need to offload Ben, but I, like Daryl Morey said, strap in because this is going to be a long, bumpy ride. Um, I agree with you that the Cavs and the Hornets have the potential to fall out. I do think that the Hornets with the elevation or the better play from Miles Bridges, as well as the uh, amazing play from LaMelo Ball, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. I do think that they'll stay actually in the top uh, six, maybe drop to seven or eight, but I do think that they're going to be right there in contention. And then I see the Bucks, like you said, getting into the top six as well as the 76ers meddling around the play-in spot. Um, it's, it's interesting to see with the Hawks, they pretty much returned everybody from that team, at least the core players, and they're not doing, I think, as well as some expected. Maybe that has to do some with the rule change, maybe not. But I, I think that the, the East has the most amount of potential parity, whereas the West, I think we're going to be looking at the Thunder, Kings, Spurs, Pelicans, Rockets in the bottom five, no matter which way you slice it. And then I think the play-in spots have a little bit more potential for parity currently in the West, but the top six seem like a good top six for the West overall. Yeah, speaking of the Atlanta Hawks, they actually have the longest active winning streak in the East with four games in a row. So it could be that they're starting to kind of figure it out a little bit. They don't need to have Trey Young playing at an MVP level to be a playoff team because their squad actually does have a pretty talented roster from top to bottom and pretty solid depth on the bench as well. So they don't need Trey Young to be a superstar. They just need him to be efficient and productive and to not be that much of a liability on defense. So I think that the Hawks can definitely sneak back in there. But flipping over to the West, the Warriors are torrid right now. 14 wins, two losses. It doesn't seem to matter what happens with their lineup configuration, who they throw out there, they're winning. They're, I mean, at first people were saying that they were playing a soft schedule, but they're beating everybody at this point. They're currently on a three-game win streak. They have by far the largest differential in the league at 13 points per game being their average margin of victory. I mean, they're playing elite defense and elite offense. They might be the best defensive team in the league. And everyone is concerned with Steph Curry hitting nine threes a game, but they actually might be the best defensive team in the league. So you have them at 14 and two, number one, Phoenix Suns, which no one's really talking about, quietly have the longest winning streak in the league at 11 in a row, 10 and 0 in their last 10, obviously dominating the competition at 12 and three. And I think that they have a serious chance at getting back to the Western Conference finals and potentially 
the finals overall, given that the top of the East or the top of the West doesn't quite look as dominant as we would have maybe thought before the season began. Um, you have the Utah Jazz at 11 and five, Dallas Mavericks, nine and six, Denver Nuggets and LA Clippers, the next two at nine and seven, Portland Trailblazers, nine and eight, the Grizzlies at eight and eight. And then you have the Lakers at nine with a losing record at eight and nine. So what do you make of the West standings? What do you think is going to stay the same? And what do you think is going to be destined to change? I mean, I, I do think that the Warriors, Suns, and Jazz are the three best teams in the West right now. And I think that they're going to stay at those top three spots. I think maybe there will be a little bit of shuffling between the Suns and the Jazz, but I just don't see anybody catching up to the Warriors right now. They have the best point differential in the league. And like you said, it doesn't matter if Steph's out, Draymond's out, Clay's not back. Like, this team just seems built to win this year and they've come back with a vengeance and you saw some of the offseason workouts that Steph was having he's come back and looked phenomenal now uh in his um I think 10th season um and so for me uh the, the Warriors are definitely the team to beat um I see the Clippers potentially uh dropping into the play-in spot and having a young and up-and-coming team like the Grizzlies or having Dame and, and CJ come back with the Blazers and, and getting out of the play in and into the top six. Uh, but the Lakers, I see meddling around in that bottom play in spot. They haven't looked good all season. This is reminiscent to me of when LeBron was in his last season in Cleveland and they had to do a lot of different trades at the trade deadline, trading away IT, Dwayne Wade, Jay Crowder, and getting back. Uh, Larry Nance and Jordan Clarkson and some of those other pieces, the Lakers just don't seem built to win right now. They seem like there's a lot of just cogs and, and clogs uh, that aren't working. And so I, I see the Lakers potentially um, barely making it in to the play-in spot. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Um, I think that maybe the surprise pick for me would maybe be, Minnesota Timberwolves being able to sneak in. I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth later, but they do have a three-game winning streak right now. And if you look at their roster, they have probably a better, um, better level of talent near the top of their roster than the other bottom three teams in the league, excluding the Lakers, who individually have great performers but seemingly have no chemistry whatsoever. So, um, but other than that, I think that your, your predictions are pretty spot on. I think that the Nuggets will ascend and I think that the Mavericks will drop. Um, the Mavericks, I remember when we were talking about them most recently, I was surprised at the pace that they were performing because Luka Doncic was having a relatively down year um, compared to the season before, yet they were still winning games. It seems though that um, this team is starting to be a little bit more of what I expected a team that is essentially going to be as good as Luka Doncic is. And given that he's not playing quite at his best, neither is this team recently currently on a two game losing streak. The only team in the top seven with a, a negative differential in the West. And honestly, I think that outside of Luka Doncic, they probably have one of the one of the most talentless rosters in the top eight in the West. They just don't have any depth whatsoever. And I really don't see um, what they can do to improve that situation, given the fact that Kristaps Porzingis has a mammoth contract that no one wants to pay because he's made of glass. And up to this point, his value has really been shot because they've turned him into a spot-up shooter who just waits for a kickout pass. He's basically shown no other development in his game since he left New York. So at this point, if you're another team, why would you trade for him? So I think that the Mavericks are probably going to decline a little bit and are going to be more close to the bottom when it's all said and done. Correction on me earlier, Steph Curry has played 13 seasons, not 10. All right, so moving on, let's talk about some of these key returns and we'll talk about some of the losses from injury as well. But LeBron and Chris Middleton returned. Talk a little bit about how they looked in their uh, initial games back. Well, LeBron returns um, probably in a very dramatic game against the rival Celtics. It's a really good game from the comeback, nationally televised. And if you just look at the stats, honestly, he didn't look bad. He shot 10 of 16, three of seven from three, had six rebounds, two assists, two steals. He wasn't bad. But if you actually watch the game, I would be a little bit concerned if I was a Lakers fan because his body language looked pretty bad out there. 
there were a lot of plays where you could just see his head down, him pouting and looking frustrated, giving up early on defense, um, basically just having that, that face that he makes when he looks at you and he basically blames you for why the play broke down. The body language just didn't look good, and the Celtics end up blowing them out 131-08 despite LeBron scoring 23. So um, even though he, he didn't look too rusty, it seems that they're going to need a lot more than him to right the ship. He still overall had a negative differential on the game, but um, that was also the case for literally everyone on the roster. So I guess uh, you can't really fault him for that. What about for Chris? And then I'll, I'll get into what I'm thinking. Chris Middleton, um, he's honestly still rounding into form a little bit. His performances up to this point have been, I'd say, D performances rather than A performances based on what we're used to seeing for him. You can tell that he still needs to get his legs under him. So far, we're seeing him put up 13 points in his most recent game, 16 before that, 16 before that. So he hasn't really come back and had like an explosive game yet since returning. And as of right now, he's averaging 18.3 points per game on the year and is honestly struggling from the field and from the three shooting 41% from the field and 31% from three. But the fact that he's at least scoring in the teens um, on a consistent basis and his percentages are, I mean, steadily improving from rock bottom from 33% to 38% to 44%. Um, and all three of those games, by the way, coming on wins shows that the Bucks are still benefiting from having his presence out there. So even though he maybe isn't having um, dramatic scoring outbursts he's still clearly making a positive effect on the team as the bucks are currently on a three-game winning streak and now finally have a winning record at nine and eight yeah i i would agree with you on chris i think he is finding his form but it'll be a similar thing i think with clay thompson like you don't need him to win whereas with lebron i think that they need him to win because anthony davis to me hasn't proven that he is capable of carrying a team by himself and so I think they do need LeBron to be LeBron. But J.J. Redick said it recently on his podcast. He said, this is the first time in 20-something years that I've seen LeBron look human. And that's what we're seeing. And I think it's the same thing you saw in the final couple of seasons from Kobe as well, is these guys have been at the top of their game for so long, and they're finally starting to look a bit human. And the stat line that comes out and screams as, both an issue slash what you're going to expect from somebody in uh, like the later stage of their career nearing 20 seasons is LeBron is averaging 3.4 free throw attempts per game for his career. He averages 7.9. So you're going from about eight free throws to three free throws per game, which to me is indicative of he's not driving to the hole as much. He's not trying to get into the lane, then kicking it out to a potential shooter and in the process getting some contact and some calls. So his last game when he came back, he got to the line once and missed that free throw. So I think LeBron is showing he just can't take the beating that he used to anymore. And it's understandable given that he's 37 years old in his 19th season, but it's uh I think definitely concerning to see the the decline and we'll see how rapid that decline is over the course of the season. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that LeBron's decrease in free throws is definitely something to be concerned about. The free throw is one of the easiest ways to get buckets. And the fact that he's missing out on the easiest buckets that he can get are definitely concerning, but I don't think it's only the fact that he um, is afraid of contact and is trying to preserve himself and that this is then indicative of his physical decline. I know that that must be playing a role to some degree, but I think another important factor is that the role that he is taking on this team right now is one that basically forces him to be a perimeter player because he is essentially starting with Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis, and oftentimes either Dwight Howard or, or, or DeAndre Jordan, depending on the night. And these are all completely non-threats from the perimeter so when you look at it lebron actually might be the best perimeter player they have in their starting lineup most nights so they actually do need him to take shots from the perimeter to space the floor 
for these other guys that have no ability to score from the outside clearly. So part of it is that, um, and I thought that that would be an issue before this season started. Whenever they signed Russell Westbrook, I was one of the people that was really low on the signing. Everyone thought that this was going to be a super team, that they were going to be impossible to beat. They were going to be at the top of the West. But I was looking at this as a terrible marriage. There was no way in my mind that I was going to see Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, and LeBron all starting together in the same lineup with a traditional center and that working out. So I think that part of what we're seeing is LeBron's free throws decreasing because of the role that he's being forced to play um, with the current roster construction of the Lakers. Yeah, funny thing on Russell Westbrook and the outgoing point guard from the Lakers that played there uh, for a season. But Dennis Schroeder, uh, after the Celtics beat the Lakers, they had him interviewing. And in the, I don't know if it was a, a meme or if it actually aired on TV, but it showed like they're paying this guy how much for Russell Westbrook. And if you look at Dennis Schroeder for the season, sure, he's not putting up the same stat line as Russell Westbrook, but he's averaging about half the amount of turnovers or even more than half the amount of turnovers than Russell Westbrook. And his PER is almost the same. They're both about 15 for PER. So Dennis Schroeder is now on a mid-level exception deal, I think at $5.4, $5.7 million, whereas Russell Westbrook's getting paid $44 million. I think the Lakers could have filled out the team in a much better way, like you're saying, rather than paying Russell Westbrook this exorbitant amount. And his turnover numbers have just continued to increase over the last couple of seasons and being in the four to five range. So he might be putting up a little bit better numbers, but he's doing so while uh, doing it at a deficit for the team. I would honestly argue that he's not even putting up actually better numbers. I mean, yeah, he is averaging more rebounds and assists, but I would be more concerned with his efficiency. It's not just the turnovers, it's the shooting percentages. Dennis Schroeder is at least serviceable from the field. He's shooting 46% from the field, 33% from three. We have Russell Westbrook out here literally shooting 29% from three and still like chucking them up. Like he's still taking his attempts and 42% from the field overall. So he might actually be the most inefficient player in the entire NBA when you factor in that he's shooting those percentages, 66% from the free throw and is also averaging five turnovers per game. So it's just clearly not a good fit. Meanwhile, all the pieces that they traded for Russell Westbrook are seemingly thriving over in Washington with Montrez Harrell putting up a potential six-man-of-the-year type of season. Um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope seemingly finding consistency from outside. Kyle Kuzma says that he's thriving, even though he's putting up statistically the same numbers and averages as he did with the Lakers. But at least he's happier, it seems. But, um, you know, it's just, it's just a bad fit all around. And you have Anthony Davis, a guy that um, they had said for a long time they wanted to encourage to shoot the three because he's so adamant that he does not want to start at center. He wants to be like a perimeter playing forward type guy, but he's shooting 17% on three pointers. That's a career low. So he has shown not only that he can't improve his outside shooting, he has shown that clearly he's losing confidence in that shot because he's even taking fewer attempts from there. And I think he's getting tired of seeing that shot brick off the rim. So um, if you if you look at the Lakers games, it's just a bunch of bricks. They could they could build a, like a, a school campus with that thing. I don't really know what they can do with their roster right now, but I don't think that the return of LeBron is going to be enough to to right the ship for them, honestly. Well, and I think Anthony Davis is trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Like he's never been a prolific shooter in terms of what you've seen in stretch fours in the past. And I think he's trying to adapt to the game instead of playing the, the way that he's been successful for his whole career. And so I, I think that he needs to continue to uh, step up when it comes to just getting in the paint, being dominant and not being afraid of these big men, because he still is one of the most dominant forces in the game when he chooses to be. So I think Anthony Davis, while the Lakers are bereft of shooting, if he played a little bit more dominantly within the paint and stopped trying to take that outside shot, that outside shot would eventually just come to him and he could gain some confidence on the inside and bruise up some people so that people would send their 
like off ball help to him in the paint and then he can kick it out uh, to, to others on the floor. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's going to take him obviously putting up a better effort, but also the, the roster improving for him. It's going to be tough for him to score consistently inside when other defenders are always sending help and double teaming because they can leave the perimeter players the Lakers have because they know that there's not really a high percentage that they're going to knock down those shots. So you can essentially leave them open on the perimeter and they won't really make you pay that much. You would rather send help to Anthony Davis and leave them open on the perimeter if you know that they're not going to knock it down. So he's basically getting tough looks every night. He's clearly frustrated. He's a guy that already doesn't love a ton of physical contact as it is. And he's probably getting more contact now than he has in quite some time. So um, definitely not the ideal situation he wants to be in. But moving on, um, moving away from some of these established stars, let's talk about some of these second-year players that are separating themselves. I think so far from the draft class of 2020, it's very clear that the best two players have been Rookie of the Year, LaMelo Ball, and Anthony Edwards. Clearly the best two players up to this point. Who do you think is the better of those two players right now? Right now, I mean, I'm going to have to give it to LaMelo Ball. I think that he's elevated his play and the play of the others around him. I think that he is a fun, spirited guy that the players enjoy having in the locker room. I don't think that the same baggage that came with LaVar came with, uh, that went with Lonzo to the Lakers, went with LaMelo over to the Hornets. I feel like LaVar, um, you know, put on the show when Lonzo went into the league and then stepped out of the limelight now when uh, when LaMelo came in. So you look at their stat lines, sure, Anthony Edwards is averaging more points per game uh, overall as compared to LaMelo, but LaMelo is shooting extremely efficiently from the field. I mean, he's 41% from field goal, 38% from three, and 93% from the free throw. He is averaging about 20 points per game while also doing it with seven assists and uh Eight, eight rebounds per game, actually almost eight and eight in terms of rebounds and assists. So LaMelo is having a huge impact on his team. I think Anthony Edwards is as well, but he's averaging uh, 6.2 rebounds and 3.4 assists. LaMelo also has a better steal um, uh, overall. He's get, averaging two, steal, two steals per game, whereas Anthony Edwards is averaging 1.3 per game. So I feel like LaMelo Ball um, is overall performing at a higher rate than Anthony Edwards while also being more efficient with the ball, not turning it over as much and getting more steals per game. Yeah, I think that um, right now, I would definitely think that Anthony Edwards is probably the better scorer overall. I still think that LaMelo Ball, I mean, I, I, yes, he's shooting pretty efficiently from three-point range. I got to give him this credit on that. I would not expect him to be shooting 38% from three on 7.2 attempts per game, especially with that jump shot that looks like a youth league jumper from a nine-year-old. I don't know how he pulls up with, with that jump shot, but he's knocking them down. He doesn't really get to the free throw line much, but he is knocking those down too. 93% free throw shooter, but overall still just 41% from the field. And I think that overall, he's kind of an opportunistic scorer. I think that he's the kind of guy that is not really going to be your number one option on offense ever. I don't think that he has that gear. Um, I think that Anthony Edwards probably is the better scorer today and will always be. Um, I, I can see your points on the defensive end, the assisting and the rebounding. You can maybe make the case that LaMelo Ball probably has an overall more positive impact on the game right now than Anthony Edwards does, especially given that he also has the higher efficiency at 20.80 compared to Anthony Edwards' 16.40 rating. But um, I definitely think that when it's all said and done, Anthony Edwards has the higher ceiling and probably winds up being the better player of the two just because he's going to be able to do things that I think LaMelo will never be able to do just because like, I think LaMelo will always need to rely on having talented and useful pieces around him. I don't think he's the kind of guy that on a every possession basis is going to be able to go and get his own shot or bucket. I think that he'll always be at best, maybe a tertiary option on a championship team scoring. I think you want at least two other scorers ahead of him on a championship team. That's not to say that it can't work, 
But I think that Anthony Edwards potentially can develop into a guy that maybe can be your number one or number two scorer on a good team, especially if he elevates his game on the defensive end, which given his um, athletic profile, he should have a high ceiling on that end of the ball if he commits to it. What do you think between those two players um, when it's all said and done, who do you think winds up having the better career? I think it's going to be uh, LaMelo Ball. I think that he has an ownership group that believes in him. I think that he is really been given the keys to this team. And I think Anthony Edwards is on a team that historically has never been great. Uh, the ownership group, I think, coming in it should help with A-Rod and Mark Lore. But I think that with Cat on that team, it's not going to be Anthony Edwards' team. And I I just don't think that Anthony Edwards necessarily elevates Cat's game the way that LaMelo can elevate other players on his team. And I do th actually think that LaMelo will be the star of the team. I don't think he'd be the tertiary person. I think he'd be the primary. But we'll see. I think they both have a bright future ahead of them. So, again, we keep talking about the changing of the guard, but the league is in is in good hands. Clearly, they'll be talking about those two picks for the next decade for sure. I know that they'll always be compared to one another. So I guess we'll have yeah. to see how it plays out. And I do want to note that LaMelo Ball's brother, Lonzo, we talked about LaMelo's jump shot now. Lonzo from three has gone from shooting 30% with the Lakers his first season with that awful form to now shooting with the Bulls 44% from three. So Lonzo has clearly improved his game and his jump shot. Um, and if he can do it and understands and is working with a shooting coach that is getting the best out of him, then I think LaMelo, who started off shooting more efficiently, can also improve his shot, which is a scary thought, given that he is already shooting uh, about 40% from three. Yeah, speaking of him, I mean, I've, I always get people tell me that I'm crazy for saying this, but I still hold to my opinion that I thought that Lonzo Ball probably would have been the better free agent pickup than Kyle Lowry, like not just for the heat, like for any team. And trust me, look, I know that everyone is going to say, how can you say that Kyle Lowry, the intangibles, he's a leader. He has championship experience. He's a veteran. He's already won. He's proven himself. But the thing is Kyle Lowry is 35 years old. And at this point I knew, I mean, even the Raptors fans saw the writing on the wall. His efficiency was declining. Last year, he already was down to about 14 points per game. And this year, he's down across the board on all percentages. He had like a nice little week. But the thing with Kyle Lowry throughout his entire career is that he's always been susceptible to streaks. He's a very, very streaky player on offense. Um, he gets hurt a lot. And honestly, I like him on a team for the right price. But I really did think that based on the asking price he was going for, he was trying to get 30 plus mil a year, that you were never going to be able to get that value back based on the type of player that he was. Kyle Lowry currently shooting 30% from three on 6.3 6 attempts per game and 40% overall from the field. So when you look at that, yes, he is getting more assists per game than Lonzo Ball, but that's because of the role that Lonzo's in. They... um don't put the ball in his hands quite as much because they have two ball dominant wings in DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine. So he's really not asked to do as much on that side of the ball, but I have just as much confidence that he could be just as good of a passer as Kyle Lowry with outlet passes and getting your offense going quickly. He's also averaging 1.9 steals per game. So you can't tell me, Oh, Kyle Lowry's just this much better of a defender. Lonzo ball is six, six Kyle Lowry's six foot Lonzo ball is averaging 1.9 steals per game as a 6'6 point guard who can switch on the perimeter and defend multiple positions. He's also shooting 43% from three on the same number of attempts as Kyle Lowry. Actually more, 6.9 three-pointers a game. So, And he's making less money. And he's only 24 years old. And it's probably going to get better when Kyle Lowry is going to get worse. So I still stick to my guns. I definitely think that Lonzo Ball would have been the better free agent signing for the Heat or for anyone if you were comparing those two free agents. So whenever they made that Kyle Lowry was the big free agent winning of the off season. No, it was, it was Lonzo. That was the best contract because over the life of that contract, that will end up being the best value of all the contracts that were signed that summer.
Yeah, I agree. And I think that there's definitely a relationship piece to that with Jimmy and Kyle Lowry. So that's likely why the heat went that way. But for any team, really, I think even the Pelicans, like why they let him go instead to have Devontae Graham there. It's that was absurd to me. The Pelicans front office always fumbles it. And they're probably going to lose Williamson, too, because clearly they can't even keep his weight in check. But um, they, they clearly just all the roster talent, they downgrade. They clearly show that they're not trying to win now around him, even though he was showing to be a 28 point per game scorer last season. They give away someone who would ideally be perfect for him. A 6'6 pass first point guard that is money from the outside. That's like exactly what Zion needs. And they let it go. Ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. Well, moving on to a funner topic, let's get into the way too early all star predictions. Let's start. I'm going to start actually with the captains for each side and who I think will be on the televised event drafting the teams. But starting the East, Kevin Durant, been a monster this season and is just showing his greatness over and over again, even with not having his running mate Kyle, uh, Kyrie Irving there. So I think Kevin Durant starts with the East and then the West, Steph Curry. I think both the fact that these two used to be teammates as well as them just having stellar seasons. I think there will absolutely be the captains for the East and West respectively. Yeah. I wish I could disagree with you just for the sake of having a different point for the podcast. But to be honest with you, there is no way that these are not going to be the one and two guys barring some catastrophic injury. Um, these guys are also the number one and two scorers in the league. And they're also both, the number one seeds in their respective conferences. So it's really a no brainer. I'm, I'm sure they're going to be the two captains. Yeah. Well, moving on to a part where maybe we have some, some disagreements. Uh, let's get into the rest of the starting five for the East and West, or rather the top five people, as well as uh, six man from each. So who do you got coming out of the East? So for me, as we mentioned already, Kevin Durant is a lock to make it. So that one's, in Giannis and Stacumpo, despite the Milwaukee Bucks struggling a little bit on their team record, is still having a monster year. PER of 30.61, 27.8 points per game, 50% from the field, averaging a double-double, getting 12 rebounds a game. Also 1.9 blocks and 1.2 steals per game. Probably going to be an all-defensive candidate as well, so that one is a lock. That's another one. Um, What's going to be really interesting is you're going to have to decide between Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan here. Um, but I don't think that you can possibly pick them both. I think that um, it's going to probably be Zach Levine in the end. I think when it's all said and done, he is the better of the two players, in my opinion. So I think he'll get the edge because over the course of the season, he'll probably separate himself a little bit more from DeMar DeRozan. And um, it's tough at this point because we're looking at this league in the East and it looks to be very perimeter oriented. So the starting line kind of depends a little bit on how you classify the positions. But if I could have it my way, I would pick Jimmy Butler to be that, um, that next starter in the East. If you could start Giannis at the center position, um, you could maybe get away with saying that Jimmy is the power forward. He's been averaging 25 points per game also has a PER of 30.64. Um, there's actually second only, in the league. Yeah, that's absurd. It's, it's actually the second highest in the entire league. So, and it's not just the fact that um, he's a great defensive player. We all know he's a great defensive player, but this actually would be his best season overall ever as a player if he keeps this up. Just look at his stats over the last couple of games. The only reason his average is where it is right now is because he had a 12-point outing where he had to leave in the first quarter um, against the Lakers with a sprained ankle. But outside of that, you have 29 points last game, 32 before that, 31 before that, the seven-point game that I told you about, and then 31 before that. And all those games, except for the seven-point game that he left due to injury, above 55% from the field in all of them. So, And that's all while providing top tier defense. So he definitely deserves to make it. It's going to be tight in the East, but um, I think that those are the most deserving players. So just to recap, KD, Giannis, Levine, Jimmy, and who is your fourth or your fifth and your sixth man? So for fifth and sixth man, 
probably a little bit tougher this year. Um, I would have expected probably a better performance from the point guards in the East, but given that Kyrie Irving is not playing and Trey Young is underperforming, the point guard pick is kind of tough for the East. Um, you can maybe argue that Jimmy's a point guard as well some nights, but um, I think that this is really the one down pick. I guess maybe you would say that it's Trey Young if they can get the record better, um, if they can get into the playoffs. But if not, you'd probably have to give it to Bradley Beal and categorize him as a point guard because that's really the only guy um, that could be considered a point guard in the Eastern Conference that is having an all-star caliber year and is also having team success. And then off the bench for the sixth man of the year, I think that one's a pretty easy pick in the East. Tyler Hero, 21.6 points per game, 45% from the field, 39% from three, um, shooting 87% from the free throw. And he's also given you 5.5 rebounds per game and 3.9 assists. So he's been pretty efficient as well. So um, that'd be my sixth man. Interesting. All right. Well, we mostly agree, but definitely have a couple of disagreements here. So like you said, KD, Giannis, I think that they're both locks uh, for the front court in the East. And I'll do some similar um, fixing in terms of who I'm thinking with the guard spots. Don't think we need to go with a point guard traditionally. I think it's three forwards slash center or uh, two guards. So I have KD, Giannis and Jimmy being the front court for the East. And then for my backcourt, I have Beal filling in, so we do agree there, but I have Jason Tatum coming in. Jason Tatum, I think, plays the two or the three, depending on uh, what's needed in a given night. I think that he has shown in his last couple of outings just the type of player that he is, and I think that the Celtics, as they continue to improve over the season, Tatum will continue to show his all-star presence and will continue to just show why he's deserving of that spot and my sixth man I went with the other member of the Bulls I have DeMar DeRozan being the sixth man I think that he's having such a great season and it's such a good storyline for him Zach Levine I think will still make the overall all-star roster we'll talk about the full rosters on a later episode but I think that DeMar DeRozan gets the sixth man spot in the east yeah, um, I, I probably would have to agree with you about the six-man spot looking back. Um, I'm probably picking Tyler here to win six-man of the year, but for all-star starters and six-man, he probably wouldn't be the six-man of the year in that case. But I am going to disagree with you on the Jason Tatum pick just because even though he's having a good year, no matter where you classify him, whether you want to say he's a shooting guard or a small forward, I still think that there's other players like the ones that we've mentioned that are performing at a higher level than him that are probably more deserving. And on top of that, when you were looking at um, Jalen Brown before he went down, Jalen Brown was having just as good of a year as Jason Tatum was. And you could argue maybe was playing more efficiently and better. So I'm not even a hundred percent sure that Jason Tatum is the best perimeter player on his own team this year. So I, I just can't seeing that say that he is an all-star starter. All right. Well, we'll see. So I'll start with the West, the lock we already talked about, Steph Curry, magical season this year, probably front runner for MVP right now. My second pick would be the MVP from last year, Nikola Jokic, highest PER in the league at 35, showing why he was MVP last year and continues to dominate this year. Then I have uh, Paul George, who is really showing that he can be the man on the team and carry the team as the Clippers in uh, the, the middle of the pack on the Western standings. And I think the absence of Kawhi has made him step up overall. Then for uh, the first time, I think uh, John Morant making the all-star team and starting. Then I have Rudy Gobert coming in as the center spot, having an amazing defensive year as expected. And then my six man of the year who are not six man of the year, but rather six man for the Western Conference, I have Luka Doncic, who will likely get a lot of the fan vote, as well as I think he'll elevate his game and pick up his game as the season progresses towards the All-Star break. Yeah, for me, I'm going to go ahead and say that Stephen Curry, of course, is a lock at the point guard position. Nikola Jokic, I think, is definitely a lock as well. As you mentioned, top PR in the league, having a dominant year, definitely the starting center. Um, but I don't think that John Morant makes it. Um, I don't really think that he can really be classified as a shooting guard. 
And even if he could, um, I still think that he's going to fall out just because I think that the Grizzlies are going to start to struggle a little bit as the season goes on. And given that there's going to be other guards and perimeter players on, on season that are probably going to be having higher team success and similar statistical output, I think that the other perimeter starters on the West are going to be Paul George and Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell's team is going to be good all year long. He's been having a really solid year. He's probably going to continue to have a solid year. And so will the Jazz. I think it's more likely that he makes it than John Morant does because even though John Morant is having probably statistically more impressive year, I think that um, the Grizzlies as a team will probably regress and having them potentially near the bottom of the playoff standings may hurt. Um, And then coming off the bench, I think we have Luka Doncic as the starter. um, And that's a pick one with him or Devin Booker, depending on what you value more. Um, Picking a player from the best team because they are the second best team in the West. They're going to have a lot of team success. So they're going to have that or um, Luka Doncic, who's obviously going to have probably a higher statistical average across the board than a guy like Devin Booker would, but it's probably going to have less team success. Yeah. Devin Booker seems to get snubbed every year. So I'm going to go ahead and say Devin Booker gets snubbed again. (laughs) I guess this won't be the year he gets it right either. Yeah. Well, We'll see. Last year, I believe we were both nine out of 10 accurate on the people who made the all-star starting rosters. I think we did have a lot of agreement there and I think it was much clearer as to who would make it. So we'll look back on this and see if we got it right or not come all-star break. All right. And now on to our final segment, plead their case. I will ask you a series of questions and you will plead the individual or situations case. Ready to go? Let's do it. Let's do it. The Timberwolves have won three in a row and led by as many as 45 against the Grizzlies in their last game, seemingly playing at a higher level recently and being only one game out of the eighth seed. Plead the case for why the Wolves can make the playoffs this year. I mean, I think the the Wolves definitely can make the playoffs this year. As we've already mentioned, it's a lot more even in both conferences than it has been in years past. There's not really um, a dominant super team at the top that's way better than everyone else. And as you mentioned, they're only one game out. And if you look at their team's construction, their roster is not devoid of talent. I mean, they have Carl Anthony Towns, who has the potential, if his head is right, to potentially be one of the best three centers in the NBA. He's averaging 23 points right now and 9.3 rebounds. He's not doing bad. And as the season goes on, I expect him to continue to improve. He's also shooting 46% from three and 50% from the field. So they definitely have some scoring talent. They have D'Angelo Russell. Um, Malik Beasley is not a bad player himself. They have some pieces off the bench. I mean, compared to the teams that are near the bottom of the West, I like their roster look better. So I think that they definitely have it within them to sneak in for an eighth or seventh seed. Yeah, I think the Timberwolves – if they don't make it, there will be a lot of rumblings if they're going to trade D'Angelo Russell, if they're going to trade Cat, if they're going to blow it all up because they have new ownership and maybe they want to just start from scratch. So it, it to me, this is a make or break it year for them. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I don't really know that I love the marriage of having uh, D'Angelo Russell and Anthony Edwards in the same backcourt. I think that they kind of hinder each other. But they definitely have talent on the roster. On any given night, any one of those guys can potentially go off for 40 points. So you never know. On any given night, they could pop off, and they don't need all of them to be firing on all cylinders to win. All they need is for one of those three guys to have a really dominant game to potentially get them a victory. So I don't think it's out of the question that they can continue to win. They're on a three-game winning streak right now and maybe sneak in. Well, moving on, Tristan Thompson goes on a tirade about how he doesn't need a coach to motivate him, and the day that he does, he'll retire. There are a lot of F-bombs and expletives within his tirade, but plead his case for why Tristan's viewpoint is justified. From his viewpoint, um, I mean, obviously he could have delivered it a little bit better, but I guess what he's trying to say is at this point, you're in the NBA, you're a grown man, you're an adult. You are literally getting paid millions of dollars to go play a child's game. And this is your job. Like you are expected to be motivated because you are getting paid to do this job. 
You shouldn't need someone to fire you up to go perform because you should be motivated based on the fact that you have this amazing career and opportunity in front of you. And you're a grown adult who has seemingly up to this point should have been able to show the maturity and work ethic to arrive at that level. So at that point, why do you still need a coach to motivate you? That's what he's trying to say. I don't know that I like 100% agree with that. Obviously, there can be times um, in different NBA players' careers where um, having a, a motivating coach can, can make a difference. Not every player is the same. Some players do play better with certain systems in place that um, help motivate them. But I will say one thing, um, regardless of who is motivating Tristan Thompson right now, himself or his coach, I think this is definitely going to be his last contract. He's right now rotting away with the Kings, shooting 47% from the field, despite shooting exclusively within less than five feet of the rim. Um, and he's also averaging 4.5 points per game. I really don't see it happening for him. He's averaging 13 minutes on the Kings. If you can't get playing time on the Kings, I really don't see anyone signing him after this, regardless of who's coaching that team. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the points of uh, the coach bit. I, I think looking at the coach bit, you don't need a coach necessarily to motivate him or anybody, like you said. And I, I completely agree with him on that standpoint. I do think that there is an aspect of coaching, though, that gets the best out of players. And I don't think that needs to be out of a motivational standpoint, but just understanding where their passions lie, where their best fit is, how their role is on a team. And so in terms of that, I think that's what the coach is responsible responsible for. But I don't think a coach is responsible for getting that player to get there or getting that player to be the driven player that they need to be day in and day out. Yeah, I agree with you. It's on, obviously, it's a, it's a synergistic process. It's on you as the player to show up with your best attitude. And it's on you as the coach to try to put your players in a position where they can be the most successful. So when you have both things happening, that's when you get the best results on the court. Yep, I agree. So moving on, after the Nets lose to the Warriors, Steve Nash said that the Nets are not in the same category as the Warriors, Bulls, Bucks, and Heat, despite the Nets being in first in the East, 12-5, and five, but they're 0-4 against those teams. Please, the Nets case for why Steve Nash is wrong and that they are in the same category as those elite teams. So I think that um, when Steve Nash was answering that question and they basically told him, hey, you've been struggling against these teams. Um, how, do you, how do you think that your team performs against those teams? And he basically says they're not in the same category. I think that part of it was that he was alluding to the Nets on defense. He followed up saying that um, no one was picking the Nets to be a top 10 defensive team during the preseason. So I think that's him kind of like sarcastically saying that the big issue that they have is on the defensive end of the floor, which obviously he's right. I mean, none of us would have expected them to be a defensive team based on the roster that they have, but it doesn't really seem to matter in terms of their team success. They still have Kevin Durant playing at an MVP level. He's averaging 28 points per game right now, 7.9 rebounds. He's been wildly efficient. Um, and James Harden, is finally starting to run into form. We do know that he probably wasn't, um, you know, doing much in the offseason. Let's be real. He came in out of shape. But in his last couple of games, we are starting to see a little bit of a James Harden resurgence. He had 39 um, Friday against the Pelicans, followed it up with 16 against OKC, then 24, then 27, and then 36. So um, in his last five, he has shown improvement while still averaging his usual eight-plus assists per game. So I think that they're right now leading the Eastern Conference number one, and they're not even hitting on, on, on all cylinders right now because they don't even have their top players um, playing at their top level. Even Kevin Durant, I mean, as good as he's playing, we know that he can still take it even another level above where he's at right now. So I think that they're definitely still an elite team in the, in the East, Steve Nash is right to be concerned about the defensive struggles that they've had, but I don't think that they're in a different tier altogether than those other teams. Cause when you think about it in the seven game series 
you probably wouldn't pick any of those other teams to beat them in less than six games. So I think that if you can take a team to six, uh, six or seven games in a series, you can argue that you're in the same tier as those teams. Yeah, and this isn't a roster, nor is it a coaching staff that is geared towards the defensive end. And so I think it is concerning that they're 0-4 against those teams. And given that the Bulls, Bucks, and Heat could be the path that they need to get through to get to the finals, it is concerning as a coach. But Steve Nash has Amari Stoudemire on that staff. He had Mike D'Antoni last year, all three of those guys being the seven-second offense from the Phoenix Suns back in the day. So they're going to score the ball. And it's, are you going to outscore your opponent every single night? Well, some nights the shots aren't going to fall. So you're going to need to rely on defense and defense does win championships. So I think that they do need to improve on that end in order to get to the finals and to be, I guess, in Steve Nash's mind in the same category as those teams. But I agree with you that I don't think any series with any of those teams doesn't go for fewer than six games. but if their whole thing is beating the Bulls first, then beating the Bucks, then beating the Heat, then beating the Warriors, they're going to go to six or seven games every single series, and the Warriors may run through the West. So if they go to the finals with a fresh Warrior squad against a bullied, beaten Nets team, that would be a cause for some concern for that Nets team getting to the finals. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that one. But um, with that, that's all well, we have. Hold on. No, I have. Oh, okay. You just got to that one. Right, I, I know. That's fine. I didn't see it all on the right. script. I know because I wanted to throw you off guard. Um, so, so last one here. Uh, Kyle Kuzma, after beating the Cavs, uh, said that it was the fans' fault that they lost, really, because there was a sign that said LeBron won Kuzma his ring. And so he went and said, well, I told them without LeBron, Cleveland wouldn't be crap. So plead Kyle Kuzma's case on why he doesn't need LeBron to be successful as much as Cleveland needed LeBron to be successful. <laughs> it's funny because I think that they both have a point. I think that without LeBron, realistically, Kuzma would not have a ring, but also conversely, he's right. No offense to uh, any listeners in Cleveland, but pre-LeBron, Cleveland was really not on the map or on anyone's radar. And after he left, I heard stories that um, their downtown and general infrastructure kind of started to crumble a little bit in terms of what they were able to generate in entertainment sales and things of that nature. So he does have a point. But um, I guess to plead his case, Kuzma probably is a little bit less reliant on LeBron than Cleveland is. Because if you look at what you deem to be Kuzma's success. I wouldn't really say that Kuzma has been all that successful, but if you look at his numbers this year, he is averaging slightly more points per game, about almost one more point per game, from 12.9 points to 13.6 without LeBron. So he actually is improving on offense without him. His assists are up as well. He is almost half an assist more per game, from 1.9 to 2.3. That's improvement. That's still positive. That's without LeBron. He's also getting three more rebounds. Probably LeBron was taking those from him. So um, getting LeBron off the court is probably helping him grab a couple more boards. And if you look at his shooting percentages, they're about the same. 35% from three this year, 36% from three last year. So clearly he didn't need LeBron to be a mediocre three-point shooter. And he's still averaging about the same across the board in every other aspect. So you can argue that Kuzma with or without LeBron is just about the same guy. But for Cleveland, you take away LeBron from Cleveland and they're a team that is a perennial lottery team. They've never been successful without LeBron and are probably known as one of the most losing franchises in all of NBA history. So, um, I mean, they literally have on their city edition court um, etched into the side their 3-1 comeback, which was made possible from LeBron, which is the, the proudest moment um, in that team's history. They wouldn't have that on their court without LeBron. They would have no moments to be proud of or happy memories if not for LeBron. So I guess I can Kuzma in that regard. Cleveland definitely needed LeBron more than Kuzma needed LeBron. 
Yeah, I agree. And the impact of LeBron to Cleveland was estimated about 500 million to 2 billion on their local economy uh, for Cleveland. So having him be pulled out of there definitely hurts overall. And like you said, a lot of the city infrastructure that was built when he went there, now he left. And so there's not that same uh, activity or um, just overall spending in Cleveland. So I definitely think that him leaving the Cavs hurt more than Kuzma leaving LeBron. But with that, it's the end of our show. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter. We have a website up, courtsofopinion.com. Like, rate, review us on your favorite podcast streaming service. We are everywhere. So with that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. Call.